I'm Jennifer Wilde, and you're listening to Sober Exposure. If it's about recovery, we're gonna cover it. It's like one big therapy session, but it's free. So thanks for joining our dysfunctional family as we uncover recovery with Sober Exposure. Let's go. It's Jennifer Wilde. Woo. Yeah. Okay. So I think this is like, this has turned into a different direction. It's turned into kind of like sober rock and roll show. Nice. You know, this is our second sort of rock and roll addiction, but uh, addiction, addition. <laughs> See where my brain goes. Oh my right? God. That's freaking is. hilarious. Well, it is an addiction. I'm really rock and roll. Is. I'm dying. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can take uh, rock and roll out of the girl, but you can't take the girl out of rock and roll. But so anyway, here we go. I've got, um, I've got my friend Gabe, Gabe R, and I, I'm calling him a rock and roller, but actually, so Gabe is a musician and Gabe does everything from, all right, here we go. Bassist, rapper, guitarist, singer, producer, um, you, you do a soul. I mean, like there's everything that you do. He's played up on stage with such acts, like just, you know, some minor acts, uh, J-Lo, you might've heard of some Jennifer, some Lopez or something. I mean, she's not a girl. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She's no Jennifer Wilde, but I, I I found you and I got interested when, um, you know, our, our buddy that we have in common, we got, we got Jimmy in common from the bullet boys. We had him on the show and I was like, you know, asking around and you told me your story. It was like in, in a nutshell, uh, touring since I was 19 international touring with Jennifer Lopez on a private plane meditation school, sitting in silence in the mountains for weeks, then getting a DUI an aggravated assault with de- a deadly weapon charge, then went to jail, got sober, released a solo album and went back to school. And I'm in for my PhD program. I'm like, that is my man. We need him. So welcome. Gabe. <laughs> Thank you. Right on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So that, so that was the cliff notes version. Let's start with the beginning. Where do we start? Where do you come from? Who are you? Say hello. Introduce yourself. Nine months. I was in my mother's womb. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I won't start there. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah and then I'm in from, kindergarten, we were talking about that. It's a That's so joke. funny. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of uh, Goonies when, you know, Chuck was like, you know, and then I was puked all over everybody in a movie theater and then um, talking about a childhood trauma and stuff. Um, yeah. We'll get into that though. Uh, yeah, no, I'm from California, born and raised Southern California. My parents met in Mexico city. Actually, my mom, when she graduated high school, she went back to Mexico to get in touch with our roots. Uh, cause she's like a first generation on her side. So I'm second generation on my mom's and then first generation on my dad's. And, um, and they came over, I think like, uh, my dad from late seventies or early seventies, I think. And, and so I was born out here. Luckily. Um, I mean, I love Southern California. I'm just this, it's my history and I've been here forever. And then being able to bounce back and forth across the border to Mexico to, to go see my family. Cause I've, you know, my dad was one of 13 kids. So I have cousins being born even as we speak. Um, <laughs> it's crazy, you know, and then they're Catholic too. So it's just like, there's no birth control or anything, you know? So it's like, there's just, everybody's having babies. Um, and so I grew up in Southern California in like a pretty affluent area. And then, uh, my parents, you know, I, I grew up in an alcoholic household, obviously I'm sure this, you hear this all the time. You know, my dad, um, he kind of developed in his alcoholism later and in my worst memories of being a kid were of him being drunk at Christmas and then, you know, hung over stuff like that. Not to say that, you know, obviously he wasn't, you know, a good parent. He was, I gotta say, you know, just cause I've been teaching in prison. And so I hear some stories and, um, and, and I feel like I'm very lucky and privileged to have two parents in the first place that cared about me, which is, uh, yeah. I think is a big deal. And uh, I want to definitely 
you know, pinpoint that. Um, but it, you know, he had his faults and because my dad was one of 13 kids, there's all kinds of other issues that he hadn't dealt with himself. So, you know, he was uh, dealing with his own issues, drinking too much. And my parents got divorced when I was about eight. And, um, and he would, you know, put me, I'd go bounce back and forth between the parents' houses. And, you know, he would sometimes be too intoxicated to take care of me. So I'd have to call like a paramedics or somebody could be passed out on the ground. I didn't know whether he was having a heart attack or what was going on. And you were uh, eight? When I was eight. Yeah. Or like Aww, or a little bit older, nine, ten, maybe. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, it's sad. And you know, one of those things, you know, I mean, it's just, you have to grow up early. You don't, you don't really get in your childhood is kind of tarnished by um, having to be the responsible one. But, you know, as you know, you, you develop in your sobriety. Like, I feel like, um, I kind of started understanding why I ended up the way I did and like where these certain things kind of started leading me. Like this specifically, for example, kind of, you know, brought me into this realization that, um, you know, being the parent and being the responsible one, I didn't feel like the rules applied to me, you know, at a young age because I was the one who was in charge because, you know, my dad wasn't sometimes he, he wasn't, he was out of control. So I feel like that was like kind of one of the beginnings of my, um, you know, kind of, uh, descent into Defiance my own. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, just kind of being, um, making up my own rules, you know? Um, and so my mom, she, you know, she very, uh, resilient and she went back to school after my parents got divorced. She got a degree at, uh, university of California, Irvine, and then she got into a master's program in Santa Cruz, Northern California. So I moved up North with her. Um, and then, Ended up getting, um, you know, we started bumping heads when we were, I was in my teenage years. She kicked me out, kicked me out of the house when I was about 14. Um, and then I came back down to Southern California and that's when really, this is when music started taking off because I feel like music was a big part of the journey too. Um, and I was playing in death metal bands, you know, like we're talking about rock and stuff. Like I grew up playing Oh yeah, I missed metal. that. I was like, okay, so I, I was just, I was going to ask you like, so how does one go from like hip hop to death metal? Or like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, that's just funny. It is. It's a trip. You know, it's, it's weird too, though, because I feel like, um, you, the early days of MTV, I know you like remember in the eighties, like there was just, they had these shows, you know, you had, you had, a uh, uh, yo MTV raps, you had head, headbangers ball. Then you'd had like all these other, uh, shows and they would just come out like after each other for the most part. I mean, I'd have to stay up late to see headbangers ball, but, yeah. um, we were exposed to so much music at all times. And it was, you know, music actually was being played on MTV and, um, and so like, I, I kind of just absorbed it all when I was growing up, you know? And so I, I appreciated everything from Faith No More. And I appreciated it. That was like my favorite band. That like was in, like the first band I was thinking of it, that, that kind of did all that was Faith No More. They took a little bit of everything. They had the funk and they had yeah. the rock and all that. Yeah. Michael Patton. Great, great performer. Yes. Yeah. Excellent band. Ex Amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like a huge influence because they lit. I mean, you know, you put on that record, the, the real thing album, um, when the faith and more oh. first got in, you know, every song is like pretty different, you know, it's pretty, mm. really eclectic. And it was like, that's the shit. Like you could do whatever you want. Like as a musician, you don't have to be pinpointed, you know, and, and pigeonholed into a certain genre. Um, and that was kind of like my idea. And then, you know, obviously when I started listening to hip hop more like a track called quest, um, the samples they used were like, were from jazz albums, you know? And so I was like, what, well, you know, what is this chord progression? So I learned what the jazz song was that, that it came from. And then that's how I started getting into like jazz and stuff like that. And then NWA, of course, like Dre mm. was doing beats that were like really, really funk influenced. You know what I mean? Like all the, mm. um, parliament P funk stuff, you know what I mean? So, and then as a bass player, like, you know, you can't deny how like that shit makes your head bob, you know what I mean? So, um, 
I got, you know, first started playing death metal because I was writing lyrics, you know, just these death metal lyrics and listening to heavy stuff. I started kind of gravitating away from, and I, you know, I picked up my first death metal album as a joke. It was a, this album, um, this band called Carcass and they were ex-medical students. They were, you know, they're British. That's old they're school all, shit. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And there were, <laughs> um, well, there's, there's Caius. There's a bunch of bands that I used to listen to in high school too. Like, uh, and then, but Carcass specifically, they were ex-medical students. And so all their lyrics were like, you know, medical terminology and I, like my girlfriend at the time was making fun of it. So I picked this up and, you know, kind of just ran with that. And, uh, but then I fell in love with it and they were, she was like, you weren't supposed to like this, you know? And so I was like, this is fantastic, you know, but it was all the growly shit, you know, like, you know, monster. It, it's so weird. I'm sorry. This is turning into like, a, uh, it's, it's the Jennifer Well DJ and me, but it's so <laughs> funny how like death metal and my son's really into progressive metal. He calls it like he loves yes. dream theater. Like yes. They're all so like brilliant, like they're medical doctors and mm. people just don't realize the brilliance behind that. Like definitely, it's not easy. That's not like just like, and my mom, you know, it's, right. there's way more to it than that. So well, that's, that's, cool. that's exactly it. And that's one of the things that, I mean, I, that's the argument that I would make too growing up, because if you took the distortion out of a lot of these tunes, it would sound like a classical piece. You know what I mean? If you had, you know, violins and cellos playing it, like you would be blown away by how, you know close similar it is to some like you know orchestration that that you know these uh composers did back in the day um yeah i mean and so you know at the time i was just a vocalist as a death metal vocalist growling and we had a guitar player and a drummer there was no bass player i picked up the bass and then from that point on it was just it was all over i started you know practicing 16 18 hours a day um especially when my mom kicked me out of the house when i was 14 and i moved back with my dad I didn't know anybody again you know i kept getting moved around so I, you know you always have to redefine yourself kind of when you move to a new place um, and so I was practicing because I didn't know anybody. I would practice 16 to I mean, 18, literally from like eight in the morning till probably about 1am. Um, so your right. first drug of choice was, was your, your music. That was your first right. drug of choice. Yeah. Right. And you know, it's funny that you just mentioned that too, because I was, you know, very, I was like one of those straight edge guys in, in junior high. Like I was, you know, I, I didn't like people that did drugs. I didn't like, um, cause it, you know, and then especially alcohol, like, you know, I had a girlfriend that would drink sometimes and piss me off, you know, even in junior high, you know, I was we were, you know, kids were getting, uh, get into those things. And, um, it just reminded me of my dad, you know, so I didn't want to have anything to do with it. But when I moved in with my dad and my mom kicked me out of the house and obviously like my dad was, um, he was still drinking, you know, and, and getting drunk all the time, passing out, that became kind of a part of the lifestyle. I think I, it was one of those things where you can't, if you can't beat them, join them, you know, I was, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know, and it's like, and that's another one of those realizations that I've had later. The reason why I started picking up alcohol more than anything. I mean, you know, obviously this usual shit, weed and, um, and booze, but I was scared of my dad when I, when he was drunk, you know, he was a different person. And, um, and so like I, I drank, so I didn't have to be scared of him anymore, you know, cause obviously once you're inebriated, like you don't give a shit about anything, at least for me, you know? And, um, and then also for, I wanted to prove to him that I could drink more than him. I could out drink him and not turn into an asshole. But that didn't turn out so well. So, oh, a little a little drinking competition there. That's <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, who can outdrink it? I'm so I'm so proud of my son. He outdrank me. Good good job, boy. I know, isn't that crazy? It's <laughs> oh it's God. so bizarre. Like the the, <laughs> the mental like um, things we jump through to to justify what we do, you know. And, uh, yeah. and so, I mean, yeah, this alcoholism developed through high school. I mean, I was literally rehearsing with a different band, you know, um, two like two days a week. I would rehearse with one band, another band to uh, another two days a week. And so I was like three bands every single day of the week at a rehearsal studio. And it started off, you know, my freshman year in high school, just getting drunk on the weekends. And then by the time I was a junior in high school, I remember playing piano drunk one day. It was like a Wednesday or Thursday, you know, obviously I'm fucking still in high school. 
And I was like, wait a minute, trying to remember a day of the week that I wasn't drunk. Um, and I couldn't remember. I couldn't think of a day of the week. I'm like, wow, I got drunk on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. <laughs> every The weekend was over. Now I was just getting drunk every single day. And that was in high school. You know what I mean? And um, I was a teenage alcoholic drinking in high school as well. And yeah. I, I, oh, this is this is funny. I went to the bar once in high school at lunchtime. It was like right at the end, right when no. we were about to like graduate. Oh, yeah. But the funniest thing is I sit there. I look next to me. And there's my gym teacher. I'm like, oh, no. hey, Miss Paul, how you doing? <laughs> He's like, hey, how you doing? Talk about out drinking. You're trying to out drink your father. I was trying to out drink my gym teacher. Your gym teacher. <laughs> yeah, she's That's looking hilarious. at me. She's like, if you don't say anything, I won't say anything, Jen. So uh, wow. we both got away with it. <laughs> That's amazing. So yeah, do I have any questions? So you're an alcoholic. You're drunk in high school. When did it turn? Did it turn really dark? I assume it did because I'm reading here that. Somehow you ended up in prison. There was a DUI, I know. And mm -hmm. did you did you get into the drugs? Did you get into the LA scene? Were you like uh, doing doing all that on the suns on the sunset? You, <laughs> you know all that all that party ass shit. You know, totally, totally. It, it, you know, since I was kind of past that phase, since I'm you know I pretty much like uh, um, the night the eighties were over. You know, like I graduated high school in like the mid nineties. Oh, sure. So since you were going to say, so since I'm, I'm younger than you, Jen, I'm not like you and Jimmy, right? I'm younger than you. I wasn't on the sunset strip. I thought it was dead. No one was on there. Uh, yeah. Those were only the days, like the good old days, the golden years that we dreamt of. We, you know, right. we'd never be the same. We'd never relive, relive those. I yeah. mean, I did play on the sunset strip, you know, I played the Roxy, played the whiskey, played, uh, what was our, the other, um, God, well, the rainbow is just a place to hang and, and right, see right. people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the house of blues, of course, like oh, all those yeah. places. Well, the thing was, okay. So once I graduated high school, I did graduate high school. Thank God. I, I didn't, wasn't sure sometimes people I can do it. I was gonna be an artist. I wasn't going to be, you know, necessarily a musician, but, um, you know, I mean, I, of course it would be nice, but it was like whatever I could try to figure out at the time. But we ended up getting a producer when I was, um, in high school, this, this big time producer, this guy that worked with Madonna, Paul Pesco, amazing, amazing, amazing guitar player session guy. Like literally you go through his, his music catalog. He's played with everybody on every album. So how the hell did you meet a guy like that? It's like, Oh, I just ran into Madonna's producer well, and he just so like took bizarre. me on. I mean, <laughs> no, totally. It's, it's, it's such a weird, it's such a weird story. Cause it's like, it's literally being, I mean, it, to me, it's like, that's kind of the way life works and the music industry works when people are like, how did you start? It's like just being at the right place at the right time. So get this, the, the singer of my band, uh, my metal band when I was in high school, he worked at a pharmacy. He was a delivery boy at a pharmacy. The woman who managed that, she had a, her daughter was um, the girlfriend of my friend, this producer. And he just happened to be living with him at the time and driving back and forth to LA to work on music. And she told him about, um, you know, our old band. And so he came up to our rehearsal studio and watched. And then he's like, let me produce your band. So that was like it, you know, and he just happened to be living in the same town as we did at the time, which is just so bizarre. Cause it's like this, I mean, it's a dreamy little, you know, Laguna beach is this dreamy little, you know, artist community It's now it's more, I know, you know Laguna. That's yeah. awesome. And awesome. Yeah. I love Laguna beach. Uh, it's beautiful. You know, yeah. Lots of drugs, lots of hippies. Uh, yeah, I, have, I was going to say I have some memories of me in Laguna Beach, but actually I don't remember any of him because um, I was basically in a blackout the entire time. This was the 90s. But to get serious again, a lot of it is luck, I believe. But it's also, I mean, you just don't like walk into it and you could you can meet the right person. And if you suck, you're not going to get the, you know, the success. Yeah. You're not going to get them, uh, you know, to take you under your wing. So obviously yes. you had a little talent there. I want to talk about some of your bass influences and then we have to get into the addiction part because it's not a music show, but <laughs> I want who, like who's, who were your, um, when I listen to you, 
So, I, I mean, obviously, I guess because I don't know that much about bass, anytime there's a great bass player, I'm going to say Flea. But like Jacko, I, yes. you had to have been a fan of Jacko. Jacko is my all-time favorite bass player. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. that's. I'm, I love that you even know who Jacko is because it's like – um, you know, he's the Jimi Hendrix of bass, but a lot of people don't, you know, I mean, unless you're kind of in the scene, I mean, I guess, you know, now more than ever because of social media and like being able to have access to all these different artists, you, you know, he's more of a household name, but yeah, he, yeah. Well, I, let's tell, let's tell our listeners, even if you're not a music person, no matter what Jacko had a lot of mental health issues and he would have been on sober exposure as well. Jacko mm. was an alcoholic. He was, yep. uh, he had bipolar disorder. He was, and, and actually he had a tragic death and he's from Florida. He's from my hometown. Wow. And uh, well, I'm actually that. from Cleveland originally, but I've been in Florida for 20 years. He, he was just a, a genius Mm-hmm. with the bass so just look him up amazing him up. Yeah. yeah and he was a drummer first you know what i mean and like he ended up breaking his thumb or something i think like playing football or something like that so he he had this kind of weird thing with his wrist that he could do that like um kind of you know just benefited him in terms of how he he his finger placement on the bass yeah. and how he got the sound out of the bass that he did he's like double um, jointed right yeah and yeah, he took the, like, he took like the frets off the bass or something it's like he invented something with the bass Exactly. He created yeah, the, the electric fretless um, yeah. because he was playing an upright. But in Florida, you know, the humidity is his uh, upright bass like exploded um, from like I think he was holding had it outside or something like that. So he wanted <laughs> to get that, duplicate that same sound, you know. All right. So let's duplicate some of your sound. And then, um, yeah, I want to I want to hear I want I want everyone to hear like what a freaking badass bass player you are, man, because I mean, you just rip it. It is crazy. I was on his Instagram. I was like, oh, dude, this shit's intense. Right on. Thank you. This is actually kind of a jockey kind of feel. freaking awesome yeah that's awesome i mean yeah it's and people say like the bass players it's just it's hard to when you're like the you know the the main like electric guitar or whatever it's just it seems like that's those are the guys that just get laid the most (laughs) (laughs) they're the ones that get all the attention you know it's like never the bass player there's so uh, many bass player and guitar i got so many jokes man i could just rip drummers apart uh, about how the bass players never get laid that definitely (laughs) yeah that's that's the main thing we're always in the back nobody gives a shit but you know you know when we're gone though you definitely people know when we're gone oh yeah 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 i mean what's 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 a band without a bass really i mean yeah you get three-piece band yeah you have to obviously so you hook up with this dude and then like, t- how, how do you get, how do you get with JLo? How's it, how does it turn out from like my dad and I are drinking each other, uh, you know, <laughs> I, under the table and now I'm on tour with JLo. Right, right. You, you, you can't dance. You're not, you know, what the fuck? 
You know, actually, I did used to dance a little bit. Oh, you did? It's funny. Well, yeah, on tour, I would dance sometimes. And Jennifer was like, you know, like, uh, she was like, well, you got some moves, you know? And like, I mean, I, like you said, you know, I was like, uh, the, the European tour uh, with this private plane, I was drunk like half the time. So I wish I remembered Europe more, but, um, so it's like my Laguna Beach story. Okay, so exactly. Jennifer, okay, she's. I, I guarantee you, Jennifer Lopez is not listening to this show. Is she a bitch? Or was she nice? Was she good to <laughs> oh, you, or was she? A, was she a total? She was awesome. Bitch? She was great. Okay, she All was right. like super hard worker. She was sober. She was like, I'm actually surprised I was able to stick around as long as I did because like I was kind of a. Uh, I was a young kid. Well, so check it out. Check it. Out. Uh, this is how also how I kind of like got involved with um, how I met Jimmy too was. So this this producer that I was working with. The band didn't work out, but he kind of still took me under his wing. Um, he saw talent in me. He saw in plus I was young and I was good enough to, you know, be on a national record. So he was going to be producing the new Lynch Mob album with George oh, Lynch. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, and so For those this of you guy that don't know George Lynch is a legendary guitar player. He played in the band Dokken, which is mm-hmm. my old my era, the you know eighties, the old people. <clears throat> Gabe, no, I'm sorry. Classic right, rock. <laughs> people call it classic rock. No, that's so funny. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so he was producing that album and, uh, he asked, you know, do you want to, do you want to be involved with this? And of course, you know, as a metal guy and I mean, I was, I was into really heavy shit. So I was like, okay, cool. I can totally handle this. This is more eighties rock stuff, of course. And so we got into that, but George wanted to take it in a different direction. So I ended up playing on this album that like, and nobody liked because there was a rapper on it and like all kinds of shit was called smoke this. And, um, but it was still in a huge opportunity for me because it was a national act. You know, we got to go on tour. I was on tour for months. Um, we played, you know, uh, uh, not South by Southwest, uh, Summer Nam, and we played TV show. I think we did a TV show. I can't remember. We were just going flying around doing a bunch of different stuff and then did the national tour. But, um, but I was 19 when we started and then I turned 21 on the road. So like that was another, you know, kind of shit show moment in terms of like being on tour, you know, I'm sure Jimmy definitely handled all the chaos that happens when you're on tour. But for me too, like, um, you know, being on tour, the reality is, is you don't, you you can, the venue, you can do whatever you want. And then you basically, you can destroy the place if you want to. And then you roll, I don't know if you can anymore, but you, you could roll into your, your bunk and your, in the, in the bus, and then you drive to the next state and then it starts all over again. You never have to see the same people over again. You can do whatever you want, create whatever chaos you want, and then you never have to be responsible for it. So the next morning you don't have to be like, oh shit, what did I do? I'm so embarrassed because you're never going to see that person again in your life. Exactly. And so you who the just, fuck cares? Yeah. Nobody cared. Like I didn't give a shit. I was 20, you know, and I was like barely, you know, so I, I had to come into the venue. I had to hide in the bus um, before the show. And then when we were ready to play, I'd come out of the venue until I was 21, which is a, like I finally turned 21 in St. Louis, Missouri at some strip club or some shit. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was crazy. Um, you know, but obviously like I wasn't into hard drugs then. So it wasn't, you know, it was just drunken chaos just basically like frat boy, stupid shit. Like I was just being an idiot. Um, and so then when I came back off tour with, with, uh, with Lynch mob, I was still, you know, kind of living this, this idea that I could just create this chaos and be a piece of shit, like in my hometown and, and nobody would say anything or I wouldn't have to do this. And my friends were basically like, kind of gave me the wake up call just that you need to figure this out because we have to show up at these places. You know, these restaurants were going to be here tomorrow and we needed to, um, you know, you, you have to still have a relationship with these people. You, you know, you're going to see them the next day. And so this is when the meditation came in, you know, this is when, uh, one of my friends, this guitar player that I've been playing with, the one the, with the, um, original, the, the band that I met the producer with, 
he went to Vipassana meditation, uh, this 10 day silent meditation retreat and came back and he was like a different person. Like, um, we were talking about social anxiety earlier. Like he, mm-hmm. he was always kind of socially awkward. And I mean, in some ways, you know, he, he just, um, very quiet dude. But when he came back, he seemed like a different person. Like he had this new level of confidence. Um, he, he was just, I guess the best way he could, I could describe it as equanimous, you know, like exactly what they, they teach you at meditation schools is, um, handling your feelings and your sensations that happen, you know, with equanimity, you know, you treat everything the same because you know, everything's impermanent. And so this is like something that I knew I needed to do because I was out of my fucking mind, you know? Um, and, you know, I kind of, I guess I started kind of dabbling, like, you know, I, mean, I was smoking weed and we, you know, dab a little bit of, you know, heroin on top of it or some shit or coke. Oh, or I just like dabbled that. in heroin. I love when people <laughs> say that. <laughs> just a little heroin. You oh, know. Yeah, I'm just a little pregnant. I'm just doing a little heroin. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, we justify the crazy shit. And so, yeah, I mean, and so in 2000, I went up and, um, you know, did this uh, meditation class and, and, you know, sat in silence for 10 days, um, and, and learned the, the, pro- the process and the teachings. And I came, it blew my mind. Like I'd never experienced anything like this, especially to, you know, take the drugs that I've been doing, you know, mushrooms and also hallucinogenics. The only thing I can compare it to was like a mushroom trip. Um, which is, you know, I mean, not what you're supposed to compare meditation to. <laughs> no, I was going to say I do all the time because okay. I mean, come on, we're drug addicts. That's what we do. Okay. Yeah, we, right, you know, right, right. <laughs> anything that's going to, anything that's going to make us do something in a positive direction. So if you, if it's going to make me feel high, then I'm going to do it. And if it's legal and if it's not going to kill me or others, and that's what meditation does. And this, this particular form of meditation um, I have to admit it. I'm going to be embarrassed because I try and act like I miss meditation. Like I call myself Zen Jen, even nice. though I'm just like oh, a yeah. neurotic fool. No, I'm a, I'm a neurotic <laughs> fool. But um, this particular type, I was doing some some research on it. It's really, really cool. It's really intense. Very interesting. I do um, a form called Art of Living, which seemed a little bit similar, but this is like your natural. You don't even do, you don't pay attention to your breasts. Okay, you, you could just correct me. Um, okay. It's like, okay, so the name of it, means to see things as they really are. And it's very, it's a very ancient, ancient uh, form of meditation uh, in India, obviously. And it's like self-transformation through self-observation and it focuses on the mind and body connection. So like you, you're completely focusing on like every little, like, oh, my left pinky toe. Exactly. Oh, that's so, that's that's cool. It's a trip. Yeah. Well, yeah. And the thing is, is like, I feel like, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I can't advocate for it enough. I feel like everybody should do this because it's like makes you so in tune with what's happening in your body. Cause I feel like half the time, especially with people that have like addiction issues or, you know, uh, trauma, which I think we all do to some extent, um, is being able to observe your own sensations and realize that they are impermanent. Um, instead of being reactionary, you know, uh, part of the things they talk about too, like a lot of people that do this kind of meditation is that, you know, I mean, you, we have this monkey brain, you know, like we're constantly, um, you know, jumping from topics in our heads and we can't, it's really hard to concentrate. We end up just reacting to things that happen to our life. We think, feel that things are, are happening to us. I mean, I, I, granted a lot of things do happen to us, but obviously the way you, uh, process that information is kind of up to you, you know, like, um, if you have the capacity to understand what is happening. So it's like, um, what they teach at, med- at the Vipassana was 
the basis of human misery, right, is is either trying to push away a bad feeling or initiate a good feeling, which, you know, spoke to me in terms of, you know, addiction. Um, and so when you sit, what they make you do is you do these, these sittings, you basically meditate 16 hours a day in silence, right? So you have no stimulation and um, you're sitting for 16 hours. You, and so you start really losing, kind of losing your shit, you know, and, and because you have no stimulation, old things that you haven't dealt with start cropping up. Right. And so, and then, you know, as you sit there, say there's an itch on the top of your head and you don't itch it, you just observe it. It comes and it goes, your leg cramps up. You want to stretch out your leg, but you don't, you sit and you wait, that feeling goes away too. So what happens is, is all these different feelings and sensations start coming up and you don't react to them. And when you don't react to them, you stop labeling them as good and bad because they go away, which is like the biggest part of the teaching. I feel like. Um, and that, and, that, that, that's, that's a skill that is that You got to learn that. That's tough, man. That it sounds is. really, really miserable. It is. It's, it's a hundred percent miserable. Yeah. It's like you nailed it. Like that's, I mean, people would fall back like, well, I was, you know, in my class, they would fall back and they'd start crying. Um, once it was over because it was like so strenuous, you know, it was like so much, uh, and it was funny cause you're just sitting. It's like, how can sitting be so uncomfortable? But you know, I mean, um, that's just it, sitting with yourself is really what the problem is, is like being able to, to battle the things in your head. You know what I mean? Can you imagine also now, I mean, back then, this is a very ancient practice and mm-hmm. back then it was challenging, but can you imagine how challenging it is now with all the, so like, I can't go two seconds without my cell, without my phone, you know, without my, without my iPhone, like without yep. any kind, with some kind of device, something like that. I, I it's, mean, it's crazy. I mean, uh, you're, you're totally on point, like, cause I still meditate. And so like, uh, you know, as as especially I, I'm in this grad program now. So like with all the studying I do and all the shit that I have to read and, um, all the, you know, uh, responsibilities that I have for, you know, research things that I'm doing, like, it's so hard to sit there and, but, but that's even more reason why we have to sit and, and kind of like take a step back and observe ourselves. Because if, I mean, to me, like that's the biggest justification for meditation is like, if you don't, if you can't look at what you're, how you're interpreting sensations in your life, you know what I mean? Under a microscope, then you're just going to end up do, you know, going through the motions. You know what I mean? Like you're not actually in it. So many people have died in my life and um, especially from like, I mean, it's crazy. Like it's just, so it's like life is so short. It's so fleeting. Right. So it's like, it's really helped me kind of develop personal relationships and deeper levels and really have an appreciation for just being awake. You know what I mean? Like, um, which I feel like, uh, you know, we forget that when we get caught up in all our shit, you know? So how does sitting in silence for you? And I, like I said, I'm going to say it again. I am a meditator. I meditate, but this, what you're talking about, this is raw meditation. This is not like foo-foo meditation with the guided music and the hmm. close your eyes, open <laughs> yeah. up, you know, that that's, that's foo-foo. This is like, this is the real shit. How do you feel that helps with drinking and and drugging and, and a hardcore drug addict how does that how does that help well i mean it really it, it kind of depends on um it, it, first of all i just think that if you're when when it's you can't force anybody to get sober and i think that when somebody's really i don't want to say really ready because it's like it's so hard because i've had so many friends pass away that were really trying and it's like but they just couldn't pull themselves out of it it's like um for me, it was being able to observe sensations and cravings that I had and, and not react to them. So like, 
you know, yeah, when I great. think about yeah. shit with my dad, you know, like, and, or, you know, this situation makes me want to get hammered, you know, like I pretty much want to be drunk like all the time or just be on drugs or something like, you know, I'm like, my favorite thing was to fucking do drink and just do a bunch of blow and smoke cigarettes and stay up for days, you know? And, um, Am I and it's guy? like, you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. like, that's a blast. Like to me, that was a good time, you know? Um, and talk about shit that I'd never do. Like, Oh, you know what we're gonna do? We have big plans. It's like, no, we're just going to try to sleep for a fucking week. That's all yeah. our big plans are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just helped me, you know, separate my feelings, observe them without reacting to them and, uh, and stop labeling things, you know, like I, labeling things as good and bad. Like, I don't like this. It's got to go away. It's like, nah, it will go away by itself at some point. If you just wait, you know what I mean? I feel like it could really help with someone that maybe has tried a few times to stay sober. And I don't think this would happen like maybe day two of your sobriety, but let's say, you know, maybe you're three months in and you're still getting like really hardcore cravings, like a crackhead, mm. like I've been sober a minute, you know, and I still get compulsions to, to, to smoke, you know, I do. Yeah. And, and something like that, you can just sit there and be like, okay, it's a sensation. And, and and just pay attention to the sensation and like you just like I guess focus on it and and acknowledge it for what it yes. is and instead of acting on it like I would always do right and and your body and your mind and your spirit connect instead of picking up the phone and calling somebody which is I mean I, how you know, some other the other program handles yes that. Yeah. I want to stress too, though, that's like, you have to have a foundation first to be able to do, cause it's like, when you just talk to somebody about doing this, it sounds so fucking stupid to be like, you know, like, being, oh yeah, just observe your sensation and your cravings will go away. And it's like, that's not, it's not that simple. Like you, the, the whole point of you not, you being in silence at a meditation school and like you're, um, you have to go for 10 days. Like your first meditation retreat for Vipassana, you can't go less than 10 days. Like you have to spend the full 10 days there. How and expensive is it? It's free, a thousand percent free. You don't have to pay anything. And that's the whole point is like, it changes people's lives. You can donate if you want, but I mean, Shit. I donated my time. I went and served on a course, on a 10 day course. I served people food while they were doing their 10 day meditation retreats. And they like, they, you know, they love that because they always need people to help. Um, but it's, a, it's, that's the best part about it. It's free. You can go, I'm in this international. You can find a pretty much a meditation center, a Pashna meditation center, like almost in, on every continent. Um, you know what I mean? For sure. Actually every continent and, and I mean, wherever you're at, you know, sometimes they're far away, but did you find relief right away? Immediate gratification when you were done? Yeah. For the most part. And you know, it's like the, the first four days of the, of the retreat, you don't even do the real meditation. Cause like you know, you do the breath work, they make you focus on your breathing for four days straight, 16 hours a day. And then finally on the fourth day is when they actually start taking me through the body sensation stuff. And I remember that first day I fell back and I started laughing. Cause I literally, I did, I felt like I was on mushrooms and, um, and, but that's the thing though, that was part of the teaching, right? Cause it's like, I, I was like, this was the most amazing, amazing full body high that I've ever felt, you know, being sober. Like, this is crazy. I want this to come back again. There's that fucking craving again. And, um, I want this to come back. So, you know, the next day that's like day six, day seven, day eight, I was hoping that this feeling would come back again. Didn't. So it's, you know, I was getting frustrated. And so finally, when I let everything go again and stopped trying to initiate a good feeling, of course, like by not day nine and 10, like I started coming back again, but that's exactly the point. And like, that's why you have to have a foundation in this stuff first before, you know, you try to apply it like to your life, but you know, I mean, sometimes you, you have to, you know, sobriety is such a complex thing. You have to put yourself in situations where you're not, 
you know, around the same people anymore. Like I went back to where I was doing, hanging out with people doing drugs, playing shows. And like within, I would say a year, I was like worse off than I was before I went not, I mean, I'm not blaming meditation, but it was just because I was, I didn't give a shit. I stopped practicing my meditation. And it's a progressive disease and the disease is progressing as you're not using. So of course, when you pick up again, you're going to progress, you're going to be worse than you were because we all know that it's a progressive disease. But so this is what I hear is obviously it's, it's an amazing practice. It's life changing, but it doesn't mean that you can, Oh, because I do meditation. Now I can go to strip clubs and hang out with people that are, you know, <laughs> uh, snorting lines with the strippers and, you know, get prostitutes every night. Right. <laughs> and, and then, and then do my meditation the next day and be fine. Exactly. That's yeah, funny yeah. because that's such a, that's like a culture thing too. Like some of the people I did the hardest drugs with were like, you know, yogis and people that fucking would, you know, were like, they were, they're on the Eastern trip, but they weren't like, I don't know, maybe it's, you know, I'm not trying to judge anybody that uses drugs. I can't use them. You know what I mean? But some people would recreationally use them and they'd be just trash for, you know, a whole weekend. But then, you know, but then I guess it's a balance. Like, I feel like being physical has always been part of my life too. Like I've always worked out. So in the back of my head, after like three or four days of, of, you know, just debauchery, um, I'd be like, well, eventually I have to get back to the gym. So it's kind of a thing where it kind of helped pull me out of certain situations. Um, but yeah, a hundred percent. You, I mean, you, it's, it's a whole, you know, recovery is a, a lifestyle that you have to start, you know, applying to every <laughs> facet of your life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, I started getting into harder drugs. I started selling cocaine at one point and like, not even on purpose, you know, it kind of just fell into my lap. Like, um, and then yeah, 2004, I got a DUI blew 0.25. So three times over the legal limit. Holy shit. Uh, yeah. At three 30 in the afternoon. <laughs> uh, fuck. <laughs> ridiculous so dumb (laughs) yeah and then uh yeah and then 2007 you know just more drunken chaos just you know angry with people fucking throwing shit like uh got an aggravated assault the deadly weapon charge and you know carrying knives around and talking about stabbing people and stuff like that like when i was really drunk just and i became an angry bitter out of control volatile idiot um and you know at that point it's like when you're realizing you're you the doctors were telling me when I was 25 that I had the liver of a 70 year old man. My blood pressure was like 160 over 110 or something like that, like pre hypertension. And, um, you know, that wasn't enough for me to stop. It was until I realized that I was going to actually kill somebody, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's never enough. I mean, yeah. I mean, the health issues, otherwise that would be the cure for alcoholism. That's what I always tell people. Like Mm. fear is not going to keep an alcoholic or an addict sober. Like your kid is not going to keep you sober. Otherwise the cure to addiction would be have a frigging kid. Have a kid, right. You know? (laughs) Um, So obviously not. No, I mean, it takes what it takes and it's, 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 it's different for everybody. You know, it's different for everybody. It's definitely not fear. It's definitely not a doctor. No, fuck no. I can't even tell you how many times doctors have told me I I have to quit or, you know, for Mm. one reason or another, I didn't give a shit. Or, or the judge told me I had to quit (laughs) and I didn't listen. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the law will do it, right? Right, 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 right. Um, Okay. So we're, we're carrying around weapons. We're getting uh, arrested and going to prison. I actually ended up getting, um, that's when my first, this is my first kind of, uh, um, I guess experience with the criminal justice system, like where I was, you know, looking at serious time, you know, I was going to get three years in prison. Um, and you know, they looked at my past, obviously getting a DUI. So they, they knew I had substance abuse issues first of all. So that was kind of actually worked in my benefit because they could blame some of my, you know, um, my, 
actions on just being a fucking drunk idiot. So if I could prove that I was going to get sober, then they would, um, you know, I, I wouldn't. It, and in California, aggravated assault, the, <clears throat> excuse me, aggravated assault, the deadly weapon. Um, it was what they call like a wobbler, like it can go felony or misdemeanor, um, uh -huh. depending on, you know, the, the mitigating circumstances. So I ended up getting it, uh, and I got representation, which I could afford. My mom kind of helped me pay for a lawyer. Um, cause otherwise if I had a public defender, I probably would have, you know, done three, three years to, in prison. I'm um, surprised at mom. Mom that kicked out the uh, teenager was, yeah. uh, and I'm surprised at mom for that one. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, totally, totally. Well, she's always, she was supportive. Um, you know, it was just a, you know, whatever it is, what it is. It's like, she was, uh, at that point in my life, I was unruly. And so I guess she felt like that was the reason why she had it, but she was always supportive of me as like a, just as a person, my music and stuff like that. But she always, you know, stressed higher education, like go back to school, go back to school. Um, and so, you know, she helped me, I got a lawyer and then I was able to get this felony taken down to a misdemeanor, which meant, you know, like extra probation time. Um, I think like five years, five to 10 years or something like that. Uh, as opposed to like three years, if I did more time oh, and they then, own uh, you. Yeah. Forget yeah, it. Exactly. You're never going to make it. You're not going to make it. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Am I predicting the story correctly? 10 years well, probation and you're not sober. Uh, uh, forget it. You're going, you're going to prison. Yeah. Well, no, for <laughs> sure. And I knew that, like, I mean, when I was sober, I yeah, obviously I'd never in a million years think of doing half the shit I did, of course. Mm -hmm. So it's like it, it was, and then also the fact that, you know, I got that charge and I was realizing that I was going to hurt other people. Like I could hurt other people, um, made me think like, you know, and, and, uh, and people that I cared about, you know, and like people whose you know, everybody's lives would be extremely affected if, if somebody really got hurt. And, um, and so I ended up doing, you know, just like months in County jail and, uh, you know, like in California, you got to pick sides, you know, obviously there's, it's all racially segregated. And so I was running with like the 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 southern chapter of the mexican mafia here um and uh and it's like you know it's not one of those things like i wasn't like a you know, i've never been a gangster i've never been involved with gangs i just uh, i was you know in a neighborhood with gangs when i was growing up but i yeah, i had other things that i was doing that kind of was able to i was able to kind of miss that that uh um you know, those places and those people so but I, you know, and you have no choice when you're locked up. So uh, I was running with this, this gang. And then of course there was a gang riot, like the last couple of weeks I was there. And that was like another eye-opening experience. And I started really learning about the criminal justice system and how things were going, how they kept beds filled all the time. Um, commissary, for example, all the extra stuff that you buy there. Like I thought it was like some kind of public service. I'm like, well, at least the money that we're spending on all the extra food is going to go to some, you know, community resource. And it's like, no, they're all owned by private businesses. And uh -huh. So I was like, wow, uh -huh. this is a business. You know what I mean? Like it, it'll, it, this is like us being in jail and being incarcerated as clientele for companies. And like, they obviously like for a profit margin, we, they want to have people in here to buy shit. Right. So it's like, it's a business. And, um, so that kind of started making me think of, you know, going in this, moving my trajectory to, to looking at the criminal justice system. And, um, and then obviously sobriety, like once I got out, like I started getting involved with all these, you know, that's to me, that was a big part of the sobriety is, is just getting involved, like getting involved with the community, meeting people, helping where I could, you know, paying back my debt to being, you know, I mean, you feel guilty. I did, at least I did for being such a piece of shit for so many years. Um, and just the people that I hurt, you know, like, I mean, I cheated on every one of my girlfriends always, you know, it's like just, uh, you know, the way it is. <laughs> living amends. So you, you decided to come out and do living amends. Yes, basically. exactly. And so it's kind of funny because like, I, uh, one of my buddies is, you know, 12 step guy. And, um, 
he's told me, he's like, everything that you do is exactly the way it is with 12 steps. Like you just don't call it that you just do it, but you don't actually like go to meetings or even write, like, I'm very unfamiliar with the big book, you know? Um, but I just end up doing it because it's like, that's what worked for me, you know? And, um, I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of other stuff I can deal with, but well, yeah, the big book is common sense. Basically, it's just like you know, do unto others as they do unto you. Be honest, live right, yes. and you know that's it. Take your inventory, uh, own up yes. to your shit, and that's the big book, really. Right, know? right. Owning up to your shit—that was like a huge thing. And then that's when I started really digging into my meditation. And then you know, um, I released a solo album in 2009. You know, detailing like just stuff that I was you know had dealt with like in jail, and then. Um, you know, being sober, like the people that had hurt, you know, so that was also kind of a living amends and, um, it just keeps developing. Like, so, and then I reattended a Vipassana meditation course sober in 2010. And while I was sitting and meditating, I was like, how am I going to be able to, you know, cause it's hard to play, especially like my album that's got, you know, I, there's death metal on it. I got Dave Weckl, you know, a fusion drummer. I got, um, Steve Perkins from Jane's Addiction playing drums on it. Oh my God, it. no way. You got Steve Perkins on your album? Yes. Oh, yeah, wow. I was very fortunate to get Steve. Yeah. Um, just like a bunch of friends and people that I'd met over the years. And like, I was like, I'm going to put out a fucking badass album with like badass musicians that I know. And, um, and so did that. And that was part of in the, but you know, like having a, an album where all kind of like faith and more with, there's so many different styles of music where I'm going to have like an eight piece band. Cause I need congas. I need a percussion section. I need background singers. Like I need all kinds I gotta of shit. hear this album. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Like it's, it's old. So the new album's going to is, is different, but it's still kind of the same vein, very eclectic, you know? Um, so I was like thinking about how am I going to do this live? And while I was sitting in meditation, like it popped in my head, I'm like, well, why don't you just try to raise money for humanitarian causes with your band, with your music. And, um, and then all the band that you're going to put together, like that's kind of like their charity, their good deed to, um, to say, you know, feed homeless or, you know, help kids that are in the court system and help them get like some kind of sponsorship so that they can, you know, have some kind of uh, positive role models, help refugees in other countries, help kids that are t- from war and torn countries get like, um, you know, uh, uh, surgeries that have been maimed by like mines and shit like that or bombs. Oh my like, God. Wow. So that, that's what I started doing. And, and so like we started doing these shows and that became my band that became the thing. And then eventually, like just recently I decided, I'm like, why well, don't I just fucking make it a nonprofit? So now my band's a nonprofit there's a, the band and there's a nonprofit that I do these different um, things with. But, um, I went back to school in 2010, just so I can sum up everything right now. Um, and got a degree in criminology, got a bachelor's degree in that. My dad passed away from alcoholism while I was in school. Um, I'm sorry. My deepest adults. I'm really sorry about that. Yeah. It's it's okay. You know, 2015, it was crazy. And you know, but the way life is, it's just a trip. You know, it's one of those things that, I mean, talk about, you know, um, being economist and not reacting to certain things. Not that like you can't react to, you know, that was like the worst shit that I've ever had is my dad dying. But, um, the same, the day of his funeral, I got accepted to this college that I wanted to get into. So it was like, you know, this, you know, bittersweet reality of just, you know, good things happen, bad things happen. You have to take the good with the bad, like, and it, you know, you, they're all learning lessons. And so you just kind of, you know, absorb it and then keep moving forward and just try to be better the next day. Right. Mm-hmm. So I got this BA in criminology. Um, I got into a law school in 2018. <laughs> wow. And uh, at the same time, like I, I started teaching in prison because I found this amazing nonprofit called Jail Guitar Doors, who I'm currently working with now, 
where, um, and it's based off of the class song jail guitar doors, which was based off of MC five, this, uh, Detroit based rock band from the, like the late sixties, the, the main guy that Wayne Kramer yeah. he went to prison for selling, um, I think cocaine to like a fed agent or something like that. And, uh, and so when he spent his time in prison, he got out, he helped, found, uh, found this nonprofit. Cause I think it was originally in the UK, but the U S version where we go into prisons and we bring music, um, and songwriting to people that are incarcerated that have never had any kind of chance to really express themselves musically or write songs or and collaborate like in a band situation. And so I got involved with jail guitar doors in 2018, started teaching in prison. Um, same time I started at law school pretty much. And then, you know, teaching in prison completely changed my life. Like, um, you know, like just hearing the stories and, and, uh, and seeing like what actually is rehabilitative versus what, you know, is just on paper and is used for, you know, budgets and stuff like that. And, um, so I withdrew from law school. I applied to a PhD program. I got into that. So now I just finished my first year of this doctoral program in criminology at UCI and I'm still teaching, um, in prison and I'm working on this other program, getting a bachelor's program into the prison yard. So where I teach so that people can get educated and get a bachelor's when they get out, they have more options, you know, at least they have a degree to show for it after spending time, you know, cause 95% of the people that are incarcerated are going to get out sometime. So you better yeah. hope they come out better than they went in. Yeah, exactly. They need, they need a plan. They need a dream and they need something to live for when they get yes. out, you know, yes. something to, yeah. That's amazing. That's some experience, strength, and hope that you just shared there. Seriously. And um, today, how many, like, how often do you, do you meditate? I mean, obviously you don't spend like eight hours a day in meditation. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm sure that they do over there where, where you went uh, for the yes. seminar or whatever. But I don't want to say like if someone's beginning in meditation because you did the whole 10 day thing, but what do you recommend uh, a good amount of meditating is per day? I would just say, you know, everybody's got to start off someplace. So like, I mean, if you can just sit for five minutes and not move and like, you know, whatever, I mean, I really just think any kind of meditation is helpful, you know, because it just quiets your brain. I mean, it's supposed to, you know, and, um, and you know, whether it's guided or to, and to be honest, like I've done some of the guided meditations and it's like, it's just not, I don't get the same thing out of it that I do from Vipassana because when, uh, when somebody's talking to me and putting like an image in my head, it's different than actually observing my own body and how I'm, you know, reacting to sensations. So like, I, I would say like what you were saying, uh, um, with, or it's called, you know, like Anapana, like the, 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 um, studying oh, your breath. Anapana, like, I love you. I miss you. Oh, 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 the breath, the breathing. Okay. Yes. All right. Okay. Um, even the, just that five minutes yeah. of breath breath work that yeah art of living and then there's a tm which is mantras i mean you don't have to do a formal um tm you can go online and just do mantra meditation that's what i do i sit there in silence and just do mantras for 15 20 minutes a day beautiful yeah no i mean that's pretty much what i you know 20 minutes 30 minutes um i haven't done an hour in a while to be honest um and but you know there's certain things that happen in life where like i notice like uh, it's noticeable in my behavior. Like I see things and I feel things like where I'm like, wow, that really irritated me more than it probably should have. It's time to sit, you know, I need to go sit down and kind of just take a time out. Um, because you can, you know, you realize that like, to me, like when I get a knee jerk reaction to anything, I'm like, wow, there's something going on, you know, like this really affected me and I've got really irritated or I have tons of anxiety or I'm, um, you know, I'm really sad about this or, you know, it's stuck in my head. I need to go sit. So I need to kind of like observe what's happening to me right now, you know? Um, 
and I get it. Not, not everybody has time to do this, but in the morning it's, you know, if you can just do five to half an hour in the morning, five minutes to half an hour in the morning, like that's, that's, that's a good start for sure. Yeah. They say the first thing, like that's the, as soon as you open your eyes, you're supposed to first, you go, you go to the, go to the bathroom, then you meditate <laughs> because Beautiful. yeah, it's supposed to be the first thing that you do when you wake up to just get the mode set, set for the day. And then in the evening to kind of chill it out a little bit to, to wind down. I like to do a little evening meditation too. So there's something else I know that you're involved in and, and the, the meditation stuff I could go on forever talking about. There's so many different forms and I I'm such a belief meditation. I've said this, I think in every single sober exposure episode Mm. that meditation, I do 12 steps. I do, but meditation is what really has, has kept me sober. I mean, wow. the 12 steps have kept me sober. I, I don't want to say that the 12 steps have, you know, I mean, the support and the steps and all that, but really what I really needed that, that really changed the game for me was when I got into meditation. Wow. That's yeah, that's huge. I mean, and so, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, for sure. Like you're, you, yeah, I'm, you've been working on it and and it seems like you've also like uh, tried different meditations out too. Like it's just part of, uh, um, you're very knowledgeable about that stuff. Yeah. I've done a lot of different seminars. I've done a lot. Yeah. I mean. That's awesome. I, hey, I'm an addict. So when I get interested in something, I find out everything about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's just the first So there's one thing that I don't know that much about that I'm interested in. I don't want to spend too much time on it because um, I have a feeling it's going to bore me to death because it's scientific and I'm a creative mind, not scientific. But for, for those that, that have tried 12 steps, I always like to give options, even though I go to meetings and I love fellowship and I do like going to, you know, I, I like AA. A lot of people have, especially it seems like in this day and age, 2021, people are sort of averting toward, uh, away from AA and they're saying, oh, it was written in 1935. And, you know, there's so many other things that you could do now. And there's something that's popping up. It's called Smart Recovery. Yeah. I've never gone to a Smart Recovery meeting. I've gone on their website and I, I you know, I'm, I'm sort of on the fence about it. But I just want to give people options if, if you've gone to meetings and maybe, you know, you have it resonated with Alcoholics Anonymous. There's other things. And Gabe, tell us a little bit about what this program is. It's just a, a, it's what they call like CBT, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, really. Um, and like motivational interviewing where like, um, you know, you kind of walk through thought processes of yours and you kind of deconstruct what you're thinking, you know, about certain topics and about your life. And then you come to solutions through like self-analysis. And then also people ask you, you know, um, basically like what you you know want to get out of life. And then you kind of, it's, it's really almost like a, um, it's a really methodological way of, of looking at, of like kind of reprogramming your brain. And, you know, I've attended some smart recovery meetings and, uh, you know, I've, I haven't necessarily, even though I'm a facilitator, like I've I helped get those, uh, um, those processes and those books into prison so that people will have options there too, because it's also, you know, a, a lot of guys, I mean, for me too, personally, like, um, like a religious element of it, like there's certain things that I couldn't, that didn't make sense to me. Um, and I know like your higher power can be whatever. It doesn't make a difference. And so like, like I, even on that, um, when Jimmy was doing his live thing, I'm like, Jimmy is my higher power. Um, he's got more <laughs> years of sobriety than I do. And he's, you know, got so much knowledge and he's so helpful. And he's, uh, uh, you know, the way he leads his life and, and it's super helpful. And I feel like, you know, anything could be that, but with smart recovery, it's, it's more of a kind of 
just breaking down your thought processes scientifically, I guess, you know, and, and, um, and reconstructing how you want to live your life based off of what you discover from doing these, these, like, these kind of like mind games. They're not games, but they're just, um, you know, processes that you break down, like what's most important to you? Like, why do you end up, you know, if this is most important to you in your life, then where so does it's, this it's thinking yourself out of addiction? Yeah, pretty much. You know what I mean? And the thing is, is like, but just like everything else. And I think yeah. you, you could probably attest this too. It's like it, the community is what makes the difference. Like you need a community. I mean, people oh, need a community. And yeah. so it's like, if, if you don't necessarily agree with this community, like you can find another community that's going to help you get to where you want to be. Hopefully, you know what I mean? And it's funny too. Cause like we were talking about like a, you know, California sober, like, I, yeah, that's just such a bizarre thing to me. It's like, you know, oh, like, uh, let's strip on mushrooms and drink and smoke right. weed and say we're sober. Are you fucking right. kidding me? Go fuck That's yourself. So crazy. No, totally. No, I get so <laughs> mad. I do. I get really, really mad. I uh... I want to mention too, though. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like a harm reductionist. Like, um, meaning like if if you're on if you're smoking meth and you're fucking breaking into cars, like I mean I've done before, and you're sm- and when, but you smoke weed and you sit home and play bass, then I'm like probably sit home and smoke weed and play bass. Yeah. Um, that's yes. better than fabulous. And I agree. And I'm right there with you. And I've had this conversation with dozens and dozens of people and I agree harm reduction. Yes. However, don't be saying that you're sober. Right. Yep. Cause you're not, I agree. you mm-hmm. know, and don't go and say, Oh, I can help you. I'm sober. I've, I've beat addiction. Meanwhile, you're smoking weed 24 seven. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Totally. I can't even, I don't even understand how people think like that. That's that's totally bizarre. But but, Hey, listen, I'm for harm reduction all the way. Like, um, when, when I, there was a span between when I stopped using and I had to go to treatment, it was like five days and I was on some hardcore shit and I was using marijuana maintenance and I, I, Mm. you know, just to get myself through those few days and, you know, um, I get it. Some is where, but the thing that makes me so sad is that those folks, if first of all, if you're really an addict, you're not going to be able to get away with that for long. If you're a true right. addict, you're not going to be yeah. able to get away. You're just going to go back to your drug of choice. Second of all, even if you are, you're missing the point of just the, the light of the soul of sobriety, you mm. know, the spirit yeah. of sobriety, you're still bogging yourself down with weed. Right. You know, and then I, I had an argument with someone who's like, he he's taking dose, I'm dosing my weed, especially yeah, I'm not getting high oh, on my weed, you know, whatever, dude, just, you know, go take your weed <laughs> and be quiet and that's fine. And just don't be calling yourself sober, you know, don't. Yeah. So totally. Um, yeah, I can go off on this one for, for a while. I get really irritated about it, but, um, no, you I know, feel you. Yeah. It's weird though. It's like, I feel like, is there. Cause I, I've also heard people, cause you know, the, I, I got involved with the straight edge community, you know, and like, there's so many purists that are like, don't drink caffeine either, you know, that kind of shit. I'm just like, I don't know. Like, cause I, I go to the, you know, consistently been going to the gym since I was 14 years old. So, um, you know, freaking decades and decades yeah. and I, I still take pre-workout, you know what I mean? Like I take this, uh, and I go lift weights and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Look, come on. Like, let's not get, I was on the phone with a guy on Sunday. He wanted me to come on his show and I, you know, it's like, so he's California sober. He, um, he doses his marijuana and he uh, once in a while takes psychedelics. (laughs) And then he's telling me that I'm not sober for the same thing. Like, Oh, okay. Well you, you, you vape nicotine. That's a drug. I'm like, dude, come on. Like, are we really going to do this? Cause I'm not going to do this with (laughs) you. 
I'm right, not going right, to right. do it with you. There's a difference between vaping nicotine and taking friggin' psychedelics. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's <sighs> yeah, it's funny. Not going I mean, there. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it has to do with headspace. You know, it's just like what I mean by that is like, um, you know, if if I don't because people ask me, they're like, do you think you could smoke weed again? I'm like, I, you know, I might be able to. I'm, but the thing is, I don't I'm not interested in the head change anymore. Like, I don't want to change my head. Like, I don't want to take something to mellow me out. I mean, other than, you know, maybe uh, magnesium at nighttime and put it in a little calm, you know, like I'll take that to kind of chill out for a little bit. Melatonin, take, right? Melatonin. Right. I'll take melatonin. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was even like not taking ibuprofen when I had aches. I'm like, fuck it, whatever. It's an ache. It'll go away. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not trying to alleviate all my pain all the time because that's fucking being alive. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, a trip, you know, but of course, I'm not trying to like, you know, I don't want to like uh, come off as like some kind of purist or like, uh, you know, holier than thou. Yeah, because I don't fucking because I like pain, no. you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's awesome. I, no, they're, you know, <sighs> And I'm going to sound like a judgmental, you know, friggin' bitch, which I am. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, um, you know, you just, uh, you, you miss the sunlight of the spirit because, um, I, first of all, I know for a fact that I, I, I couldn't smoke weed. I, I, I'd be able to maybe get away with it for, I don't know how long, not too long before, you know, I'd be, cause, cause I'm a true addict, you know, I'm yeah. like a friggin' addict, man. I am, mm-hmm. you know, so Totally. California sober, schmober, whatever, you know. Well, that's that's uh, the exact same thing. Like uh, I would go through phases and that's how I, you know, um, before I really went off the deep end, like I would go through phases where I would just drink and do a bunch of blow. And then I'm like, oh, I got to mellow this out. Like I'm going to I'm going to I never thought I was sober necessarily, but I'm like, I'm just going to smoke weed. But then I'd end up smoking weed fucking 16 times a day. Like I have all day my, long. <laughs> my sack under my, my driver's seat and I just smoke everywhere I went at all times. And it was like crazy. And I was teaching kids too at the time too. So like, <laughs> That's <fuck."> hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and to each his own. So yeah, I yeah. mean, you have cancer, you're in pain, you have to smoke weed. Cool. I mean, I, I don't want anyone to get the, uh, wrong idea. I mean, I am for legalization of marijuana. I am all for marijuana. I just am not for drug addicts and alcoholics smoking marijuana and calling themselves sober. Call me yeah. crazy. Mm-hmm. Really? Yep. So it seems like I've been talking about this California sober thing like every episode because it's so trendy right now and it's so dangerous. So anyway... Gabe, you are yes. the shit, my man. Right and Thank I want to so know. Much. Yeah, I want to know when your next when when's your next record, and and what do you got going on? Where are you going to be? Where, I know you're you're just studying twenty four seven. You're not doing shit except your head's in the book, right? <laughs> well, I just finished the first year, so I'm very happy about that. And apparently, like uh, all the requirements that I had for you know the for this program specifically is are out of the way. So now I'm able to kind of research and do the stuff that I want to work on, which is like arts and corrections. You know what I mean, like. Um, seeing how music or, you know, uh, other forms of art are a rehabilitative and transformative for people that are not, I mean, it doesn't even have to be incarcerated just in general, like foster home youth, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. Um, but I am because I, I'm free during the summer. I'm not free. I, I have this graduate student research position. So I'm, I'm still working on a bunch of different things. Like during the pandemic, we've been collecting testimonies of people that are incarcerated in California specifically to see, because there's been a bunch of outbreaks out here. So, um, mm-hmm. I've been working on a project where I'm doing that. And then also doing, um, you know, releasing this album that I've been trying to put out for 10 years because it's like a school has been getting in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then playing shows too. Like I, I play, I play gigs pretty much every weekend, but with like a corporate um, cover band, you know what I mean? Where we do, you know, everything from Frank Sinatra to Bruno Mars tunes and 
Um, that's so, so, oh, that wait, I saw, you know, I saw that on Instagram. That, that shit is no, that's no joke. That yeah, band. no, it's fun. It's, it's a yeah. blast. Go, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, that's no joke. That band, that, that was like, that was the shit. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. That, it's that cool was, being able to play with a full horn section. You know what I mean? And like play and like, cause you know, I never, you know, had a band where it was like that, where we were doing like big band tunes, like Sinatra and stuff like that. Like it's crazy. So like it's, I said it's at the beginning, yeah. From death metal to big band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so right. what, what's the, what's the future when you, when you finish school, what is it that you want to do? Well, I mean, part of my drive during, um, you know, being a musician and getting into higher education is, is like my, my idols, you know, Tom Morello. And then obviously, I don't know if you're familiar with Greg Graffin from Bad Religion, the singer. Yeah, of um, course. I can't believe it. He's, he's got a fucking PhD in evolutionary biology. I, d- I think I did know that. I did know so that. I did. Yes. It's crazy. So I read one of his books. Right. And so um, he teaches at UCLA as a, a, you know, evolutionary biology, zoologist, you know, professor. And then he goes and tours like during the summertime with bad religion. I'm like, that's the shit. Like yeah. I would fucking love to do that. So you get that kind of academic, uh, research adding, you know, um, contributing to knowledge production. You know what I mean? Like, uh, learning new things about the world, about yourself, about people, uh, to hopefully make society better. And then at the same time, make society better or use music as a catalyst for, you know, change, um, for helping people, and also for your own, you know, kind of therapy, like music's hundred percent therapy, you know, for me. And, um, so Hell I want to yeah, keep putting out albums and working yeah. with different artists and stuff like that, start these music programs in prison. Um, so people have these options as well. And as well as like in, in, uh, you know, at risk communities with kids that are, you know, group home kids and they don't have other outlets, you know, for, um, for creativity and education and stuff like that. So, you know, just keep building on kind of like what I'm doing already research and then play gigs. Like I'm never going to stop playing gigs. I don't think so. You still love it. Yeah. That's, that's a true musician, you know, just love it. You, you're a, you're a gig guy, man. You like being out there and just doing yeah. your thing live. Yeah. So, and it just cracks me up. I'm going to wrap this up, but I just love the fact we've referred to, to Jimmy a lot. Jimmy plays drums for the band, the bullet boys. And you know, he was a big guy in, in the late eighties and stuff. I used to, I probably saw him on a million tour buses uh, over the years. <laughs> we had some times, but he doesn't remember them. But anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> it just, I love how we just all went from disgusting human beings that were doing no good in the world, just drinking or, you know, and, and, yeah. and now we're just like rock and roll geeks. And I love it. I love being a geek. Totally. I'm a geek. Self-proclaimed. Yeah. I admit it. I'm not cool anymore. But you know what? This is the new cool. This is the new cool. You know, helping others is a new cool. Getting a PhD is a new cool. You know, that's freaking the new so cool. Too. And I, you, you are the new cool, Gabe. And I love it so much. Thank you. And we're going to be following you. We're going to keeping our eye out for your next album. And I'm going to go back and listen to your 2010 thing. And thank you, uh, yeah, thank you so much. You're doing such amazing things in the world. And this is Sober Exposure. I'm Jennifer Wilde. All right. See you. Peace. Need more? Of course you do. The show's all about needing more. Go to my website at soberexposure.show or get stuck on my Instagram at soberexposure underscore podcast.